0: You know what I do this weekend? I wrote a poem, put a lot of heart and soul into it. What? It goes like this. I love you, you love me. Let's all go to Art Basel, Miami. If you don't, the world will know. You won't have the trophies to show. Mm. It's filled with joy, laughter, and wonder, and opportunities for speculators to plunder. That's true. Unlike crypto, fine art is on a roll so head down to Miami for the Art World Super Bowl. All right, welcome back to Art Smack episode four. We made it to four. Can you believe it? We got a great show as always this week. I'm your host, Matt Capasso, and I'm here with
1: Jerry Gugosian.
0: Jerry, what is up? How's your Thanksgiving?
1: Um, I don't know if you noticed, but I've been basically on a food strike since.
0: <laughs> Seriously, you've been like fasting. Post get your body back. To yeah, the because
1: we ate for like twelve hours. That's what straight, we do.
0: That's what we do.
1: You Italians.
0: <laughs> on this week's episode, we're gonna play our game of the week. Of course, mm-hmm. we're gonna post a big question about what is art and what isn't. Stay tuned. We'll dive into the legacy of shock art and its resurfacing with the latest marketing campaign at the fashion house Balenciaga. And then at the end, we'll wrap up with some what we're calling arts givings. We'll give some thanks to the things in the art world that we're happy and we're thankful for.
1: It's called gratitude.
0: It's called gratitude, people. So stay tuned. Welcome back. So this week's Game of the week. Ding, 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 ding. Are you excited, Jerry?
1: Yeah, of course. I want to play. I want to win. What do I get? So this week- Do I get some FTT if I win? You get some some FTT
0: tokens. I was able to buy up a lot recently for some unknown reason. I think it's because they were really cheap. So we're going to play a game that I'm calling Guess the Celebrity Collector. Okay. So I'm going to read a brief description that I wrote of a collection, and then I'm going to give you some multiple choice choices for you to guess which celebrity collector it's describing.
1: Okay, so okay, Fair enough? Okay. More
0: straightforward than our other games, right? Yeah. All right, let's get into the first one. Okay. This songstress has a penchant for 18th and 19th century furniture, design, and folk art. She has been a collector of American art since attending Bill Clinton's inauguration in 1992, where she was drawn to the White House's collection. In 2015, the Oscar-winning actress, hint, hint bequested an eight-foot-tall painting by John Singer Sargent to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, where she served as a trustee from 2007 to 2014. Is this describing A, Celine Dion? You love her. I know you do. B.
1: I love all these women.
0: Cher. We love Cher. We love, what's it called? Moon?
1: Moonlight, Moonlight. Moonlight? Moonlight.
0: Great movie. B, Cher. Or C, Barbara Streisand?
1: Okay, well Cher and Barbara are both actresses, but Celine Dion's not. So we're kicking Celine out wow. as much as I love her.
0: You're discerning. Um
1: and as much as I love Cher, she lives in a compound in Malibu, which does I feel not like she
0: just lives in like the heavens in like a cloud. No, she That's lives
1: in she, she lives off. in Malibu. <laughs> For my former L.A. life, which is horrible for collecting art for many reasons, mainly the salty air. So I just feel like it wouldn't be her. So... So? And I feel like Barbara is, and Cher is also like has this like sexy sexual reputation that though Bill would like probably get off in secret on being friends with Cher. I feel like wouldn't be good for a presidential reputation. Whereas Barbara Streisand sort of is like a Meryl Streep <laughs> in terms of her She's like very very central casting. kept yeah. her nose like clean yeah. and in there. So I'm just gonna go with it's Barbara Streisand.
0: You would be correct.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: good job. I and like
1: I, literally didn't know. I
0: swear, people, we didn't we didn't rehearse this before. It, it does make sense when you think about like. Do you think Cher would buy a John Singer Sargent painting? <laughs> <laughs> like anyway. <laughs> Okay, good job. You're one for one. Number two, you ready? I'm super ready. According to this collector's son, he's done it all. What's left? Collecting art. His son believes that his dad's record-setting purchase of a Kerry James Marshall was the start of a whole new endeavor, and that his dad would be starting his own Getty Center with his collection. Before that big purchase, this music mogul was spotted at Art Basel of Miami sizing up works at the Mexico City Gallery, Galleria Olimar, with art advisor to the stars Maria Brito at his side. He's had his eyes on works by Ruben Ort- Ortiz-Torres and Julieta Aranda. Is it A, Diddy, B, Swizz Beats. or C, Moby?
1: Mm, I think that Swizz went back to Harvard and has, like, his own very particular particular ideas about art buying and generally buys like definitely from the studio or like in very intimate art buying settings i don't think he buys from art fairs that's like not maybe he used to a long time ago but like not recently he has like he kind of is like more in than that so i don't think he would be that flashy and Moby, I don't think Moby is like building anything Getty sized He's more like open a vegan tea house. So I'm gonna go with Diddy. You
0: are correct. Okay, two for two. Wow.
1: Woo. I'm I really don't know here, guys. So I'm just guessing. Fun,
0: fun story. Did you know who my first boss was in my first internship I ever had during college? Who? It's P Diddy. No way. I was an intern at Sean John in like 2012. Did I ever Did tell you this? Either? Yeah, I worked in the same office.
1: Is he nice?
0: Moving on. Um,
1: oh, okay, okay. Question number
0: three. Now, Jerry is two for two. So you're doing really well. Okay. So, this comedian who has recently entered the scrum of individuals hoping to democratize the art market is actually a legitimate art collector with an envy inducing array of works. A home tour courtesy of Architectural Digest reveals a ping pong table by Ryokrit Tiravanadja, sorry, <laughs> juxtaposed with a woven hanging sculpture by Ruth Asawa, oh. while one of the Diego Giacometti's bronze felines has pride a place on the desk. The collector also owns a mixed media sculpture by Catherine Willis and works by Mark Grotchan, Ed Ruscha, and Andy Warhol in their Beverly Hills homestead.
1: <laughs> okay. Is this
0: A, Steve Martin? Okay. B, Ellen DeGeneres? Or C, mm-hmm. Neil Patrick Harris? Okay,
1: so here's how I'm going to reduce this. Ellen DeGeneres, she lives in Montecito, so she doesn't live in Beverly Hills. She's way richer than that. (laughs) So I don't think Neil Patrick Harris, I'm sure he's rich, but I don't think he's that rich. So I'm going to go with Steve Martin.
0: The answer is Ellen DeGeneres.
1: She has also a Beverly Hills house?
0: Yep. Of course she does. This is Ellen DeGeneres right here.
1: Well, I know okay. she has a. She also lives in Montecito and has a fucking crazy Look, Steve house Martin, in Montecito. Steve Martin. He was married to Cindy Sherman.
0: Steve Martin is a known, awesome art collector. Yeah, I've seen him walking around Christie's during the auctions, just like yeah, just checking out paintings. But this collection, it came from a video I watched Architectural Digest of Ellen DeGeneres. This doesn't and her seem wife like giving a tour.
1: No offense, this doesn't seem like a lesbian's art collection. <laughs> That's also the other thing that jumped out. I was like, this is very non-lesbian. For, I'm generous. In my two opinion? for
0: three. 66.6666 repeating okay. percent. You're okay, doing okay, great. Fine, fine. Keep going. Okay, Let's make failed. it up with the last one. I think you're going to get this one. Okay. Okay. A diversified portfolio, not unlike the range of characters, this actor has played in some of Hollywood's biggest blockbusters. This actor was famously named after a major painter, and he'll soon be bringing the polymath to life in a biopic based on Walter Isaacson's book. Like most art-collecting celeb, he's a big fan of Wonder Kid's Jean-Michel Basquiat, but he also has a yen for Walton Ford's historically-inflected tableau, Brooklyn-based artist Jean-Pierre Roy's surreal apocalyptic landscapes, Eric White's hyper-realistic scenes, and works by Frank Stella, Adrian Genny, Takashi Murakami, Urs Fischer, and Andreas Gursky. Am I describing A, Tobey Maguire, B, Leo DiCaprio, or C, Jack Nicholson?
1: Leonardo DiCaprio. Ding, ding, ding. How'd
0: you know? What was the giveaway there? The Leonardo, of course. I, I was like, oh, should I keep that detail in? But all right.
1: Okay. So I won, right? You won. Three, Three or four, four is totally
0: win. Congratulations. Oh, uh, this is fun. That was the game of. The-
1: Okay, so I have the question of the
0: week. Oh, boy.
1: So, lately, a few things have happened which have caused me to revisit some works that I believe have been canonized as art. And, and through conversations that Matthew and I have had back and forth, I have been reexamining with myself what, in fact, I believe is art versus things that I just don't like but that maybe I just in fact need to accept is art Mm -hmm. so I guess the question of the week is when is a work of art actually art and when does it become fart aka (laughs) fake art
0: okay so we're, we're doing the art versus fart
1: yes (laughs) <laughs> so a common refrain heard from casual art viewers would be stuff like, I could do that, or just like, "Is th- why is this art, or is this art? But actually, scholars also have very, very, very common questions. Maybe not, I could do that, but the question is this art is a very serious question mm-hmm. that people spend their entire lives trying to figure out just like people are going to probably be studying me one day <laughs> being like was she an artist or was she an influencer or was she an art critic we don't we don't know you know or was she just a podcaster or you know like yeah. trying to figure out and what bucket to put somebody in is oftentimes difficult, right you know, right? There's, it's uh, hard even like, to say.
0: Even some, what we called radical art movements from history, mm-hmm. like the Impressionists, now you look back and who would say that stuff like isn't art, right? Mm-hmm. Monet. But in the moment mm-hmm. when it was compared to what was called salon works of the time in Paris, which were just what you would call more mainstream kind of state-approved artists and artworks that were exhibited to the public that typically depicted nobility or myths or religious scenes. Some of the critics of that time didn't even consider what Monet and the Impressionists were doing as art. And, right. and it's so laughable now, but I think that debate in the core of your question is continuing today. And you said it, like a casual person who isn't, versed in the art world or studied art history will sometimes enter into a show or a museum and look at something and be like, how is this art? I hear that all of the time. Don't you?
1: Yeah, I do. I do. And I get that. I I understand that. But I also, I still have those feelings Mm. quite often. And I, I defend people and their initial impulse to jerk away from it because i think that art deserves that treatment yeah. just like it deserves thought right. right like it deserves like if somebody's initial impulse is to jerk away from something then that's fine but then it's also you know our job as artists or art lovers and stewards of art to say yeah I understand how you could feel like that, but have you ever thought this? Or Mm -hmm. do you think that maybe this is what they might be saying? You know, it's sort of important for us to help people ask hard questions or whatever and then see if it makes sense. And if it doesn't, maybe the art needs to get stored in a drawer, you know. (laughs) Tucked away. Yeah, Yeah. Hilma Off Clint famously said, put my stuff away for 75 years because this it's not going to be understood for a long time or you know i've just which is so
0: amazing right yeah how correct she was
1: or even listen to this i just you know put out my newsletter but vera shaitalova who made this film daisies which is this film that was a a a feminist critique of communist rule czechoslovakia Mm mm-hmm Was first screened, was uncovered and first screened at Art Basel in 2005. And I was 20 years old and I was, you know, lightly a little stoned and I walked in (laughs) and I watched it. I And I had no context for it. Right. And I watched it. I completely misinterpreted it. And that film set me off on a course to go and become an artist. And right. it like sort of laid a, an interesting foundation in my brain.
0: When you went into that theater, to wherever it was screened, yeah. did you think I'm watching some sort of art piece? Or did yeah. you think I'm gonna go see a movie? Like- no,
1: I read on the outside that it had been banned for being subversive art.
0: Got and it. when so I
1: read knew. the word subversive art, I thought that that implied like naughtiness. And there was, like, sort of naughty... There's some nudity in the risque, film, right? Not nudity, oh. no. But it's, like, it's like playful risque, right. like, women throwing food and doing sort of bad, you know, sort of not bad behavior, nothing compared to, like, what you see on TikTok or <laughs> in your Explore page on Instagram. But you know what I mean? Sort of bad behavior. Uh, throwing food, wasting food, running around you know, wasting men's time on the phone, rolling their eyes, like just being like bad. and I, But um, playing tricks on people. But I sort of read into this. I saw a lot of like allegories and I saw like good and bad. Uh-huh. And I just I thought that it was God and the devil fighting over this idea of art on the earth, you uh-huh. know, and I was like, hmm, that I thought I, that laid a framework for me. So. We don't have to go too much into it, but what is interesting is that there can be an artist's intent, and then sometime time can go by, and then somebody else can pick up something that an artist made, interpret it differently in right. a different time in a different place, and that work can mean something different to a new culture, and that can also plant a seed and inspire something in a different way, right? right? So. It's very interesting how art works. It's like it can spread seeds and it can mutate and and change and turn people into, you know, something else. So, it's very interesting. And then what do you, what do you think or say about that because when she made it in that time, like literally the state came and confiscated wow. that and was like this is not art. Like, and if yeah. you show this, you're going to go to Prison, and like you didn't want to go to a Siberian labor camp <laughs> over a piece of art you made so she hid one copy and luckily it survived and like it inspired my little cuckoo 20 year old brain to be like oh I've got to go this and become an artist well, this is my calling.
0: Thank God it did and, Right. but I mean I could imagine that there are other folks in that theater with you at the time that just looked at it and said I don't know what I just watched. Yeah. Sure. Art, I, it's like some sort of film thing. I got dragged here by my b- girlfriend or boyfriend or... Yeah. And it, it makes me think like, you and I were talking about this artwork the other day and we got into like a little bit of a debate, but I think we arrived at a certain consensus. Mm-hmm. And I think this goes into a perfect encapsulation of the debate of art versus fart, which is a great name. And I love that. It's a work by an artist named Martin Creed and it's titled, Work Number 227, The Lights Going On and Off. And I'll just describe quickly, like, what the exhibit was. It, it first came to the Tate London in the early 2010s, I think 2012. So the content of this work is almost nothing. You walk into a gallery with bare walls.
1: White walls. Bare white, white walls. walls
0: in which the lights turn on and off in intervals of five seconds. So it's not even like a special chandelier or lighting situation. It's purely the lights turning on and off in a five second interval in a gallery space. And like this work won the Turner prize, which is like, what would you say? Like the Oscars for the art world kind of, like it really is the Oscars or the Academy Awards or the Emmys for the art world. And I, I, Because we were talking about I pulled up some of the reviews that came out that were written at that time. One reviewer said, this is the worst winner of all time of the Turner Prize. (laughs) Who showed us an empty room in which a light bulb went on and off, and that was all. Um, Another critic, (laughs) funny, this critic said it right after the Tate acquired the piece, so maybe she was a little validated. Described it as an important work and a sober, minimalist piece in the long line of artists using everyday materials for potent formal and psychological effect.
1: But maybe she was just doing a little ass kissing.
0: Probably. We tend to see that. But it's like, so imagine two people enter into that room. Person A is an art historian, has worked in galleries, perhaps as a curator somewhere, and they walk in and they see this work by Martin Creed. They have a completely different relationship with it versus a family visiting from, let's just say, from Texas, and they flew into to London to go check out an art art gallery on, on an afternoon because it was rainy outside, and they walk into an empty space where the lights are flickering on and off every five seconds. They'd probably think they walked into a broken room that, like, should have been yeah. quartered off. And they, they would just get mad, and maybe that would push them away from from contemporary art for forever.
1: And yeah. also make them feel like, and we t- spoke about this the other day, almost like their intelligence is purposely being insulted. Yeah,
0: Like, it's so much easier to, as a curator or a museum or a gallery, to show the public what I think they believe art is, like a painting or something or a sculpture something like identifiably art. I think that's really easy. And I think it's accepted by people that are stumbling in there casually. But to put something like this in the centerpiece of a museum exhibition and Mm -hmm. give it the accolades it got, it's pretty ballsy. But, and,
1: but sorry, as yeah. somebody who studied conceptual art, and I think this is why it got so much critique, mm-hmm. um, somebody who studied conceptual art, <laughs> fuck, I want to like...
0: Say it proudly.
1: Oh, no, I want to like go lock myself in the closet for saying <laughs> that. The work was very out of time. Mm. It was... How so? It's like that idea was dated, like... Mm. Maybe if like in the sixties or seventies, like when maybe if like Vito Acon- conchi had done that, or like
0: John Cage,
1: yeah, the guy who or played like the four minutes in and thirty-three seconds period, song. yeah. If that work had been done, may you know I understand that, but the fact that it was done in like the two thousands, it was like i'm sorry get a fucking life <laughs> get over it okay, excuse so my with... language no i'm sorry but it's like get over it it's it's rude i'm and he's okay he's british so but like i think there is a sort of fundamental difference i don't know what our division of listeners are europeans to americans and I feel this very strongly when I speak to European artists. As somebody who studied in Europe, as well as studied, lived, you know, studied and lived in Europe, and then I studied and lived in the U.S. and now, obviously, live in the U.S. There is just such a difference, you know. You can work very little or not at all and be an artist, mm-hmm. whereas in the U.S., I worked all through yeah, school and that while I was in school and then I got out of school and always had basically five jobs up until (laughs) like very recently, up until like the last couple of years and just, I just entered the phase, I'm 37, I just entered the phase of being an artist full time like two years ago. I quote unquote earned that right. And, like, a lot of my friends in Europe, and I'm saying this with jealousy, I can admit that, like, n- never had jobs, you know? And and so a lot of their art, and I, they're going to get offended by this, tends to be highly conceptual and navel-gazy. So it can just be concepts and ideas, and, like, it doesn't have to be for sale, and nobody really has to collect it, and it can just be, like, Like, when we went into the German pavilion.
0: Oh, yeah. And they just, like, had dug
1: up the ground inside the pavilion during the Venice Biennale. And it's like, well, first of all, Vito Acconci did do that (laughs) in the 60s or the 70s inside of an art gallery. So, again, not interesting. You're out of time with that, my friend, on a conceptual level. But, like, also, like, it's offensive when... To me, it's offensive when, like, A, we've moved past it. I don't want to hear or see you play with your belly button because there's more pressing and interesting topics and issues going on with the world. And this is just frankly not, this is, like, not part of, you know, this is a weird word to use for this moment, but, like, this is not the zeitgeist. This is not what's in the wind. Like you, like fart smell, you fart smelling your own farts. Remember that episode of South Park? Oh my God. You know, like the
0: San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like, this is like (laughs) what you're doing. And it's to me, it's like very boring. So sorry, I just had to let that one out. But
0: you could talk about street art. You could talk about things like obviously the the most recent art versus fart debate that came up was Maurizio Candelot in 2019 with the banana duct tape to the wall was it called? The Comedian? La Comedienne? Yeah. That piece, like the Creed piece, was this seminal crossover from not just being covered in the art press and talked about in art circles, but being on the front page of like the New York Post and written about in the Times and really kind of entered into the mainstream conversation. And I remember it was right before Christmas, and I remember preparing myself to go home to my family to field questions about the goddamn banana. You were? Because I was working at Christie's. Uh and it had just happened at Basel in 2019, right before the pandemic, mm-hmm. and all my cousins, aunts and uncles, appreciate art, but they don't You know, they don't yeah. spend a lot of time working in it. Remember, I was just prepared for it. And what my, my dad did, which is very funny of Giuseppe, is he took a banana <laughs> and he taped it to the wall in the dining room.
1: Oh, my God. Just
0: to kind of clear the air and address the elephant in the room just for a gag. Um, that artwork was, again... In this conversation of art versus fart, I I for one saw what Catalan was doing because I was familiar with his work, but I can totally understand why some folks out there that are just seeing this image and it's sold for like 120 grand that they would be head scratching. I mean, seriously. Yeah. What I'm discovering as we're having this conversation is that you clearly have deeply studied these concepts. You've written about them. You've been steeped in them. And you're arriving at certain conclusions about what is art and what is fart that someone who never looked at an art history textbook or took a class would also arrive at it's and to me it's very interesting how there's that that coming together
1: well okay i sort of feel like it's one of those you can only do it once and you do it once and you do it great
0: do what once
1: like you can do one great provocation right And then when there's this repetition in culture and everybody's just trying to, like, have this provocation contest, a pissing match, if you will, to see who can do it more, like this outrage contest, sort of. It's like it just, you become numb to it. You become, like, deadened to it, sort of. And it's like, it gets very eye rolly and like a little cringy. Cringy, yeah. yeah. And also, like, I don't know how to explain it. It's sort of like I also get it in movies, like emotional porn. I call it all the time. I hate emotional. You porn. You do. You
0: you turn off movies if you sense that. you're yeah. watching them.
1: Like, yeah, exactly. When they like, emotionally
0: manipulate you. Yeah, you're like if a out.
1: movie is like setting me up to be emotionally manipulated really early on, I'm like, uh-uh, I'm not watching this. Like, give me a chance. Like, allow me to, like, fall in love and genuinely have my heart broken or something. But if it's, like, so fast, so soon, come and gone overnight, I'm like, ugh, oh, what, a, what a, like, cheap stunt. And I feel like a lot of these things, like the golden cube that was put in Central Park or like the banana that's like, like I was at that Art Basel. And even my friends who I felt like should know better were all like, did you see it? Did you see it? Do you want to go see the go- the fucking banana? I'm like, no, actually, like, I don't. I don't care. Like, Do you know how things, many other
0: artworks are in this you exhibit know? right like, now? Like, yeah. Or... And
1: I just like. The The fair is big, and I don't feel like walking over there. I'm good. Like, I'm okay, yeah. actually. I, I mean, I'm going to say stuff that makes me sound sappy. Just like I said, you know, like, let me fall in love and have my heart genuinely broken. But, like, give me a chance to, like, r- find something that actually surprises me. And... You know, I believe in like slower mediums.
0: That's not so on the nose, right? That yeah, just it's just you. there's
1: no like mystery. There's nothing interesting, and I think that's why. I think there's only a few pop artists in like. First of all, I don't really think pop art art in 2022 is interesting. Like it's it's really agree. boring. Um, you know, I love Andy Warhol. I'm. I, I am an Andy Warhol apologist because I've read so many of his books and his actual writing mm-hmm. to me is very, very stimulating.
0: You were just reading his book downstairs yeah. right before this. You love it. What's it called? A to Z? Uh, the,
1: the philosophy of Andy Warhol from A to B A and to back B. again. Sounds
0: and much I, know.
1: I love that book. I've read it. Th- this is like my sixth time reading it. <laughs> um, I read it like every couple of years and it's, an important book to me i think he's he is he is worth his weight in ideas like he is very worth his position that he holds he's not a fake artist and he did it and i just feel like everybody that comes after him is sort of like a you know like russian dolls as they get smaller quite often they get like worse Worse painted, you know, because they get smaller and people just get sloppier. It's like a game of telephone. Yeah. And I've just, I, it's like, just stop. Like he already, like so many people have already done it until you can, like, actually sort of take what this person has done and digest. Maybe, maybe it'd take a hundred years or something to like Mm -hmm. truly digest these ideas. These people just like want to push it. And it does. It feels like, you know, no pun intended with the banana that has a short fast life, but it feels like fast food. It's like these bad fast ideas that just get like thrown at you. And you're Mm -hmm. just like, I'm just like, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work on me. And I don't know. I'm allergic to it. Personally.
0: Except you like cheesy gordita crunches from Taco Bell.
1: You, well, All
0: right, Jerry, let's get a little spicy. Okay. We're going to talk about the art fail of the week, which is slowly becoming my favorite segment. How familiar are you with the fashion house Balenciaga?
1: I I have uh, one pair of shoes from them. I know Kim Kardashian wears that brand a lot, and I've been reading a ton about them in the press lately.
0: (laughs) You know, the the recent stories that have come out, it's a kind of controversial, very sensational, which keep that word in mind because we're going to hit on that later. But for those who aren't familiar with the latest news story coming from the fashion world, but it totally is related to art, is a marketing campaign that was led by Balenciaga. And I'm going to read just a summary. Someone put together a really great timeline of this story. So on November 21st, a Twitter account known as Shoe on Head implied that the luxury fashion label is conspiring to exploit children, which is kind of an inflammatory statement, clearly. So the Twitter account began by highlighting a few photos from Balenciaga's holiday gifting campaign, which starred a child model, or child models, clutching the brand's harness-clad teddy bear bags, accessories that debuted at Balenciaga's Paris Fashion Week, spring summer 2023. So harness-clad, you saw the photos, right? They were of the, what would you say, BDSM?
1: Yeah, kind of BDSM-inspired teddy bag, purse bags, they're...
0: Yeah. And there but the the photographs had child like pure children on
1: them. Like three, four year olds holding them.
0: The Twitter account ended up taking a another image from, I guess, a related campaign or the same campaign, unclear to me, but something else that Balenciaga had put out in their marketing where the scene had a series of papers on the desk, and zooming in on those papers revealed it to be a comment from a Supreme Court ruling called United States versus Williams that upheld a Protect Act, a federal law that criminalizes advertising, promoting, presenting, or distributing child pornography. And on November 22, Balenciaga turned off comments on its Instagram when the story went viral and they posted a story apologizing. They said, we apologize for displaying unsettling documents in our campaign. We take this matter very seriously and are taking legal action against the parties responsible for creating the set and including the unimproved items for our spring 23 campaign photo shoot. We strongly condemn abuse of children in any form. We stand for children's safety and well-being. So Jerry, where I kind of want to take this after that summary is just, what is the legacy of shock art? Because I think stuff like this, which by the way, Balenciaga has filed a $25 million lawsuit against this production company that to put together this marketing campaign called North Six Incorporated. And the Set the Diner, which is a guy named Nicholas Desjardins, Um, follows a bunch of art world accounts, by the way. But I guess he's some sort of creative that put together this campaign that Balenciaga signed off. on. Does
1: he follow Jerry?
0: He does not. But I wanted to ask you, like, this is the latest, and I think a -a whack-a-mole game of like shock art popping up Mm -hmm. and causing a stir. And I think the creatives were attempting to do something that was really edgy and Mm avant-garde. That I don't know how you feel, but I feel like totally missed the mark.
1: Well, okay, wait, let's go back here. So, Balenciaga, for a while now, under this guy Demna, has been extremely disruptive in the fashion industry, period.
0: And that's Demna Gizvalia, the Georgian guy who took over Balenciaga, also founded VetMa,
1: um...
0: And has been kind of one of the darlings of the fashion world for like a decade now, truthfully.
1: Mm-hmm. I I thought a lot about this when it came out. And, you know, you and I discussed it quite a bit. I would just say that it's interesting that the brand and, I mean, it's Caring the, is the parent Correct. company. Correct. And then it's Balenciaga, and now they're gonna sue the production company. But
0: so, people, just so I can tell the audience, like Caring Group is a French conglomerate run by a guy named Francois Mm Pinot. You may have heard of like LVMH, Louis Vuitton, Leo Hennessy. Caring is like the big competitor um, that owns a bunch of fashion labels and luxury companies that you guys all know. So, Caring also owns Gucci, Saint Laurent. Um, and a few other household names. So one of their brands that they own is uh, Balenciaga.
1: Mm -hmm. So why, what is this? first of all, what's the separation of church and state between Balenciaga, Demna, and this production company? Because clearly, like, a production company can't, like, they write proposals and have to get, like, get things approved, and then things have to get reviewed before a company uploads things to their websites and prices get added on. And, like, they can't act like they didn't see these images before this stuff got posted. That's horse shit. That's them not taking responsibility for their actions. Yeah. They just didn't think they were going to get caught.
0: I'll just read a quote from the photographer of the shoot, Gabriella Gallimberti stated that this guy, Desjardins, the creative person, was not in control of the direction of the campaign and the choice of objects displayed. So I agree with you. To say as a brand that the marketing campaign that you put a lot of weight into, they, I don't know if you guys know, Bluntier deletes their Instagram. Like every time a new collection comes out, they clean slate it and then they post a sequence of posts to really elevate it and highlight it. They don't want it to get lost. So they put thought into these campaigns. This, mm-hmm. this, is, not, this is not done. And I, I would have to imagine that someone like Gazvalia or this entire group, pretty detailed oriented. I don't think anything placed in these set scenes is random. And it's an interesting question. Like, wh- what was the intention here? Mm-hmm. You know, was it? I mean, look, I don't think they were like promoting wink, wink. I, I don't know, pedophilia. But then what was the point?
1: Yeah, I don't know. There's just nothing. So it doesn't matter mm. and to me. It doesn't matter. It's a. It's a. It's a taboo for a reason. It is an absolutely off limit subject. There's just no like absolutely zero justification. Period. You don't
0: walk that line. You don't and go up against it.
1: It's not like oh, we're playing with sparklers. You're you're playing with bombs. And ammunition, not like matches and candles, you know? And I'm not even going to list why it could be not a good idea right now. But we live in a very sensitive time. And there's all kinds of people who are looking for reasons to be upset on both sides of or it's not just two now it's not binary there's all different kinds of fractions of people who are upset you know and who are looking to take action on their upset and they're looking for people to blame Mm -hmm. and you just you just don't want to mess with it like I love that. I love this idea. Like the 90s were a very interesting moment for shock art. Totally. And this is something that we can get into a little bit. Right. So shock art, interestingly, sort of was possible in the 90s because I think places like the UK, as well as the United States, especially in the United States, if there was ever a great time to be alive in the US, it was the 90s. It was like American exceptionalism just really permeated the culture in all kinds of ways. It was a it was a pretty affluent good period for the UK and America. And I just remember this like it's the 90s attitude. Like, don't talk. You can't talk to me like that. It's the 90s. Like, I'm American. I'm the, you know, like, it was just a different time. It was a time of openness. And so, like, there was like this shock art value where people were kind of okay to receive it because it was pre cancel culture. There was like a safety net. So the guy,
0: I mean, th- talking Sorry about-
1: Sorry if I'm rambling here. No, but
0: talking about, th- there's a there was a show in the 90s, 97, which is what Jerry's referring to. It's a sensation. It was an exhibition and collection of contemporary art owned by Charles Saatchi, which took place in September through December of 97 at the Royal Academy of Arts. And this was like such a famous show. This is where Hearst exhibited the formaldehyde shark. It's where, I believe this is where Tracy Eamon's bed piece was, Mark Quinn- the Blood-Filled Head, Chris O'Feele with the paintings with Elephant Dong. Like this was a really important show and it was super shocking. And I think it generated, it feels like controversy is a theme of this show, by the way, but it, it did generate a lot of controversy. Um, that's what you're referring to.
1: Right. So, you know, just to r- bring it home, I think that artists at that time were being empowered and felt very entitled to take liberties that, you know, again, it goes back to our conversation before about Warhol or whatever. It's like, do it and do it once and do it well and do it with like a lot of power and a lot of force. And I do think that the YBAs did do it then really well and really powerfully. Do I think that their CD is like on repeat, skipping the same song or the same part of the same song over and over and over? Yes, I do. I think a lot of those artists, not all, just keep making the same work over and over and it's really stale and getting old. But I think the work that they made then was really powerful and crazy and wild and important to the canon for that instant. Mm -hmm. It didn't need to be repeated at infinitum the way it has been.
0: Yeah, and like Alexander McQueen, fashion designer of the 90s, was in this dialogue with the YBAs, like Hearsts very specifically in one of the uh, shows that McQueen put on. So shock and fashion they've been hand in hand for a long time now but i think with the balenciaga thing i think the guys over there missed the mark pretty badly
1: yeah it just was it's one of those things where children period first of all they don't just do don't it. first of all they just don't belong in fashion they need to be wearing light yellow light blue light <laughs> pink a little mint green Little duckies, little <laughs> butterflies, little unicorns. That's it. They, they don't need to be wearing pretend bondage anything. <laughs> like, no. And that's it. it. Just leave them out of it.
0: All right. And for the final topic of this week's episode, I, I don't know about you, Jerry, but I think we need to brighten this episode yeah. up. I feel like we need to end on a high note. So in the spirit of Thanksgiving... Jerry and I wanted to give some thanks, okay. specifically give some thanks to the things in the art world that we are thankful for. Now, look, there's a lot of reasons to feel a little downtrodden about the art world. But in this brief little moment we have this weekend before Basel, let's take a moment to express some of the things that we appreciate about the art world. So what do you say? Let's just go back and forth. Say a couple things that we're thankful for. Why don't you mm-hmm. start?
1: Um, I'd like to say that I'm thankful for VIP collector's lounges.
0: <laughs> yeah?
1: Yeah, it's Care. like always a good, good time to watch, people watch.
0: Fair enough. I want to say I'm thankful for the Medici family. Mm. What a family they were. So responsible for the works from Botticelli to the Duomo in Florence to supporting and influencing the Pope to commission things like the Sistine Chapel. The Medici family, the Odry art patrons, shout out to you guys. We're thankful for you. And if your lineage still lives on, do you think that's possible? Maybe.
1: Uh, yeah. Probably somewhere
0: in southern Italy growing wine and enjoying old master's paintings. But shout out to you guys. Thankful for the Medici family. All right. What else are you thankful that's for?
1: That's a good one. Um, I am thankful for... I'm thankful for curators many of the curators that have put on the big retrospectives at the Guggenheim. I feel like I've seen (laughs) some really world-class retrospectives at the Guggenheim that have changed my life. Yeah? Yeah. Like? Helma Ofklund. Okay. Matisse. Yeah. Like, those two in my lifetime, I feel like were, I mean, they're kind of quote-unquote girly shows, but, like, I love those shows.
0: Perfect. I mean... I agree. Shout out to all those great curators that are putting on meaningful museum shows. Yeah. Um, Mine's another a little weird historical one, and I want to take the audience with me on a quick journey. Okay. So a book came out a few months ago called Picasso's War, and it was by an author named Hugh Eakin. And the author tells the story of a guy named John Quinn who lived in New York City during the early 1900s. John Quinn was a lawyer- for investment banking things, who had a red-hot passion for art. And he was buying up art like crazy in New York in the early 1900s. The thing is, at that time, the only artworks in New York were works by American artists, which were great, but he saw a show that Picasso did somewhere downtown and became ravenously obsessed with modernism from Europe. So much so that he went down to Washington DC And used his political clout and influence to pass laws that changed the way that paintings were taxed when they came into the United States. Basically removed the tax, which in turn led to a huge inflow of paintings from Europe into America. John Quinn was one of the organizers of the first Armory show, super famous. And then eventually his collection would be the kind of bedrock foundation for the MoMA. So John Quinn, thankful for you. Opening up uh, New York and the U.S. to European modernism. Shout out to John.
1: Okay, so I'm grateful for all the really wild and weird studio visits I've ever been on in my professional art career and before, you know, prior to. There's a special kind of generosity and kinship that you get when you enter into an artist's studio and you spend time with them usually it can go anywhere from i've i've spent an hour with an artist and then i've spent an entire day with an artist of you know like and you get to walk around inside their head you get to hear them speak understand their sensibility see through their eyes understand how they go from thought to material to object and it's really Or maybe not even an object, but it's always a very special experience. And, you know, it's not always easy to articulate how someone goes through that process. And then the fact, like, why would you necessarily even want to share that? Yeah. But then it's really special when somebody does want to share that with you.
0: And you and I have been on some amazing ones. Yeah. Just really getting to see behind the curtain of... Some cutting edge, awesome artists. I mean, we've been in studio visits and very nice lofts in Brooklyn to pretty dicey, <laughs> decrepit buildings. Oh my
1: god! A little we bit were deeper in, in, in Brooklyn before, where I was afraid it was going to cave. <laughs> yeah. It was going to cave in on us, but it was such an amazing studio visit.
0: It was, and and that's the key. And I'm super thankful for those things too. Yeah, let's give a shout out to a company I'm thankful for, for many reasons. I want to give a shout out to Christie's Auction House.
1: Whoa, okay. They
0: gave me my start in art. It was my first art world job. They empowered me to start this charitable auctions program, which led to me first curating shows, which funny enough, Mm. in summer of 2021... A little artist named Jerry Gogosian stumbled into an exhibition that I helped curate and put on, and that's where I met you. So mm. I'm thankful for Christie's for all those reasons.
1: And I'm super grateful for you. And on that note, we are grateful for you too, dear listeners. Yes.
0: Most importantly, we are thankful for everyone that's tuned in to the first three episodes of Smack. For those listening to this episode, those that have rated us.
1: Oh, yeah. And if you want to show your appreciation for us, it sounds so ridiculous, but pick up your phone or go into your computer and give us five stars. It is the way that people are able to discover the podcast. It's a silly little thing, but it's how when people go and they type in art podcast, It helps us become discoverable. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we
0: really do. And so Jerry and I are heading to Miami tomorrow. We're packed. We're packed, we're ready to go. We get in tomorrow night. We have a fun week of events and art fair gazing to do. Yeah. So.
1: Don't forget to subscribe to gagosian.com and become a member. As Uh, we always say. There's a two tier uh, membership. Either you become a VIP member or you become a premium subscriber. Either way, there's all kinds of perks. One being you get invited to events. And if you hurry up and subscribe now, you'll be invited to all kinds of great things that are coming this week. So if you still want to jump on that bandwagon, go ahead and subscribe now.
0: All right, guys, this has been Art Smack. See you later. See you in Miami.